this is unit two of IB business management, specifically human resource management. Human resource management is defined as a strategic approach to the effective management of a business's workforce. And a part of this is human resource planning, which is analyzing and forecasting the numbers of workers and their skills that will be required to achieve the business's objectives. And this is often done with a workforce audit. The two main stages of human resource planning include forecasting the number of employees required, which is based on the market conditions, seasonal factors, the productivity levels, the objectives, changes in employee laws or labor turnover, and two, forecasting the skills required. So that would be based on the rate of technological change in the industry or the need for flexible or multi-skilled staff. So that is one, forecasting the number of employees required, and two, forecasting the skills required. Labor turnover measures the rate at which individuals are leaving an organization. So high labor turnover means that a large proportion of an organization is leaving annually, and an indicator of employee discontent because it shows that they're leaving after a short period of time, therefore the conditions may not be desirable. It could also be because it is a temporary job or an easy job that may be picked up by part-time employees such as students. And it could be an area of unemployment where attractive jobs are available, therefore people will switch. Low labor turnover is when a small proportion of an organization is leaving annually. And it's an indicator of employee satisfaction because not many employees are leaving the organization because they like working there. It is also an indicator of a very specialized job where changing and integrating is not easy. So that would be, for example, in scientific research. And lastly, it could be because of an area of high unemployment. So people would not want to risk losing their job in that moment because there's a chance that they wouldn't find another one. Advantages and disadvantages of high labor turnover. So an advantage is that the low-skilled and unproductive staff may be leaving the organization, which would improve the workforce or take away any slacking employees. It also means that there is space for new ideas and motivated staff to be employed, and it eases the reduction of staff for businesses that need to cut costs, meaning that they don't have to dismiss people because they are leaving on their own. Disadvantages of high labor turnover include the cost of recruiting and training new staff. It also means that vacancies can lead to poor output levels if the business is not able to operate at maximum capacity. And it establishes poor customer loyalty because a lot of staff is changing, therefore you won't be able to build the same relationships. It also means that team spirit and stable work groups are challenged because the staff is constantly changing, therefore the same bond with the staff or with the team in a business isn't going to be possible. Now, internal and external influences that affect human resource planning. So there's natural population growth, an aging population, and migration. A natural population growth will increase the proportion of eligible employees, which is very good for businesses because there's more diversity of who they can recruit. However, a disadvantage is that an increased birth rate as a result of population growth will take years to influence economically active populations and actually serve the business. That means that although the population growth may be good in the long term, until it reaches this long term, it's not going to benefit the business. For the aging population, older employees often show much more loyalty and reliability. So this is good to have an older um, staff member. 
as well as this, older employees have developed more experience over the years, so they're also able to teach other people and they are very good at their jobs. On the other hand, a disadvantage is that older employees may be less adaptable to changes in the working environment, especially with technology. They might not be able to keep up with the other employees and therefore fail to be equally efficient. And then migration, a benefit is that it may bring highly specialized employees from all over the world to the business. And a disadvantage is that it could cause the brain drain, which is the loss of highly skilled employees to other countries because they are finding more desirable opportunities. Alongside this, immigrants could require more training due to the cultural differences of their business. Changes in labor mobility. This addresses the flexibility of employees in a business regarding their position. So there's occupational mobility, which is the willingness of an individual to move jobs that may require different skills. And then there's geographical mobility, and that is the willingness of an individual to relocate for a new job. So occupational mobility could help governments achieve high efficiency because workers can shift positions when necessary and ensure that all the fields that need to be covered are occupied. And geographical mobility can lead to overcrowding, specifically from rural to urban areas, because people are moving to areas where the jobs are better. Recruitment. This is the process of identifying the need for a new employee, defining the task, and choosing a candidate. And the steps in recruitment include writing a job description, which is a detailed list of the key points about the job, and it indicates all of the responsibilities of it. Second is a person specification. This is a detailed list of the qualities and the skills and qualifications that this applicant will need. Then third is job advertisement, which could be internal or external recruitment. So internal would be advertising among the employees and external could be with a specific um, campaign. And fourth is a shortlist, and this will be based on the CVs of the applicants. And lastly is conducting interviews, which will lead to the um, choosing of your final recruit. So it is one, job description, two, person specification, three, job advertisement, four, shortlist, and five, interviews. These are all the steps of recruitment. Training. So training is the education and the preparation of a new recruit in how to run or work in the business. And there's different types of training, and these are some of the following. There's cognitive training, behavioral skills training, off-the-job training, and on-the-job training, which is linked to induction training. So on-the-job training is where instructions are given at the place of work. And this is often linked to induction training, which is the introductory training that allows employees to familiarize themselves with the workplace and the other staff. Then off-the-job training is the opposite of this. It is where all training takes place outside of the business. So before they go to the business, they will learn how to work there and then they will visit the office or the location. Then behavioral skills training is the development of a new recruit's communication and interaction abilities for internal and external applications. So this depends very much on the job, but it is focused on how one should behave in the workplace and how that will affect their job. And lastly, cognitive training. This exercises to improve a new recruit's ability to understand and retain information, which is also very specific to certain jobs. Employee appraisal. This is the process of assessing the effectiveness of an employee. And there are four main types. There's formative, summative, 360 degree, and self-appraisal. Formative is an informal assessment. It is a learning process for improvement 
and it's based on a qualitative feedback, so it's not a specific rating. Summative measures the success of an employee, and it could refer to specific agreed-upon objectives and whether the employee has met them or not, and it could influence bonuses. 360-degree feedback is all-around data, which means it involves input from various stakeholders that the employee engages with, and it's also referred to as multi-source feedback. And self-appraisal is a self-evaluation of the employee that they write themselves, and it is a basis for discussion with their supervisors in most cases. It could contribute to a final assessment. Then two important terms to know are dismissal, which is being removed from a job due to incompetence or a breach of regulations, and redundancy, which is when a job is no longer required and the employee becomes unnecessary in that position. This is no fault of their own. Employment patterns and practices. This includes portfolio working, teleworking, flexible hours, and part-time and temporary contracts. So this is the different practices that shed away from the traditional way of running a business. Portfolio working is when multiple employments at one time are possible, rather than the individual committing fully to a business. So they'll often have a portfolio that they use to apply to different jobs and they'll complete different tasks for the different jobs. Teleworking is working from home with a contact to the office via ICT. So, for example, right now, doing home office would be considered teleworking as well. Flexible hours is the lack of commitment to a specific schedule or hourly rate. So it is similar to a part-time, but it is less focused on the amount of hours you work and rather when these hours take place. And then part-time and temporary contracts reduces the burden of full-time employment and it allows employees to commit for shorter periods of time if they're still exploring the workplace. Flexible and part-time contracts have specific impacts on, on the employees. So advantages of, for the employees is that it allows them to self-organize their day and their routine. It allows for multi-employment as well and it adds diversity to their working life. This is especially if they're still exploring their career choices. It's also ideal for employees that are unable or unwilling to commit to a full-time job, for example, students or the elderly. Disadvantages, however, is that there is lower pay than full-time employees. There could also be job insecurity because they are not making a full commitment to the business, so in the case the business needs to cut costs, they may choose their part-time employees first. Then there's also less social contact and team spirit due to the physical absence of the employee, and this could lead to a lack of motivation or lack of purpose. And then flexible and part-time contracts will also have significant impacts on the business. So advantages for the business would be that employees can be demanded for the busiest hours and seasons to ensure effective operation of the business, but they don't need to be employed 100%. Employees are also available in case of absenteeism, so there will be uh, substitutes wherever necessary. And there are savings on overhead costs, so they might need smaller buildings if many employees work virtually. Disadvantages for the business is that effective communication is challenged, so their motivation could also be influenced, leading to a less effective business, because they're not seeing each other person in person and messages could be distorted. It could also cause lower productivity because there's a lack of control of the workers since they are at home. They may take the work less seriously and the work that they are doing may not be modern, monitored as closely. Human resource strategies. Some of these include outsourcing, offshoring, and reshoring. 
Outsourcing is the hiring of an external party for a specific business activity. Offshoring is the relocation of a business process to another country. This could be to the same business or to a different business. And reshoring is the transfer of a business process back to its country of origin. Benefits of these strategies is that it saves costs on HR salaries and administration. It also provides access to HR specialists because that can lead to the long improvement of the workforce and they can also help ensure that the legal requirements are fulfilled and HR specialists are generally more reliable. Resources can also be redirected towards HR strategies rather than administrative work. And businesses can focus on the core activities that add value to the business as HR doesn't necessarily add value to the business in the short term. Disadvantages of such human resource strategies is that outsourcing is not always cheap, so it won't necessarily always cut costs. And outsourced services do not have a personal insight of the employees or the business. They may not have an understanding of the cultures and attitudes of the business, and that will influence their decision making. HR can also add value in the long term due to effective workforce planning, and delegating this to an external business could restrict this value because they don't really know the employees on a personal level. The decision made by the outsourced service could also not take into consideration other business departments, which is important for a big decision, and there's potential for communication problems, which could be due to the language, the time zone, or distorted messages because it's passing through a lot of parties. And lastly, outsourced services may disregard laws due to different cultures or ethical customs. So although the laws may be the same in different countries, whether the culture is to um, follow these laws or not is going to differ. The impact of innovation, ethical considerations, and cultural differences. So the impact of innovation is that it ensures growth and development of a company and it gives employees a greater sense of purpose and motivation in their tasks because they're moving forward and working towards the future. Ethical considerations regards the lack of cultural awareness which dictates the successful integration of employees when traveling abroad. Then there's bribery which is the training of employees to manage bribe requests or standardized financial behaviors for employees abroad and pay, which is the pay for local and foreign workers, which could vary due to national standards and whether this is ethical or not. Cultural differences, there are two main ideas, the culture of the organization and the national culture. So the culture of the organization is going to be based on whether they use a hard HRM strategy or a soft HRM strategy. So a hard strategy is managing staff in a way that cuts costs while a soft strategy is managing staff in a way that helps them achieve self-fulfillment. And the absence or presence of these strategies is going to dictate the culture of that organization. For national cultures, HR management practices may need to be adapted to suit the national conditions and the culture because they will have different approaches to HR management and they will undergo things in different ways. Moving on to 2.2 organizational structure. So this is the internal formal framework of a business that shows the way in which management is organized and it's linked together with authority and how it is passed through the organization. The organizational structure indicates who has overall responsibility for decision making. It shows the formal relationships between people and the departments and the accountability and the authority and how that is passed down. So that would be the chain of command. 
And then there's the number of subordinates, which would be the span of control, the formal channels of communication, which could be both vertical and horizontal, and the identity of the supervisor or manager to whom each worker is answerable and should report to. So a level of hierarchy is a stage of the organizational structure at which personnel is on, and that's where they have equal status and authority. So if you are on the same level of hierarchy, you are at the same position in the organization as another individual. Then there is tall structures and flat structures. A tall structure, also known as a vertical structure, is an organizational chart with many levels of hierarchy and usually narrow spans of control. While a flat structure or a horizontal organizational structure is one that has very few levels of hierarchy but wide spans of control. That means that one person is responsible for, for a greater group of people, while in a tall structure, one person is responsible for less people. Therefore, there's more levels and there are more people with responsibility. Just to reiterate this, a span of control is defined as the number of subordinates reporting directly to a manager, and the chain of command is the route through which authorities pass down an organization. So, for example, from the chief executive to the board of directors. Then two big ideas in organizational structures are delegation and accountability. Delegation is the passing down of authority down the organizational hierarchy. And accountability is the obligation of an individual to account for his or own activities and to disclose the results in a transparent way. The process of delegation can be very beneficial to motivation because it gives people more responsibility and makes them feel that they have a greater purpose. So a wide span of control is going to encourage delegation because there's one person that is responsible for a lot of people so they will pass down, pass down some of their authority. This then ties to accountability because although the manager will delegate the authority to someone else, they are accountable to the manager for their good performance, but the manager will still have the ultimate responsibility for the work, so it still needs to reach a certain expectation. Advantages of delegation is that it gives managers more time to focus on the important and the strategic roles. It also shows trust in their subordinates, which can help to motivate them as well as challenge them. It develops and it trains the staff for more senior positions in the future. It helps staff to achieve fulfillment through their work and it encourages them to be accountable for their work-based activities. Limitations of delegation are that if the task is not well-defined or if the training is inadequate, then the delegation will be unlikely to succeed and the task will not be completed in the way that it should or to the quality that it should. Delegation will also be unsuccessful if insufficient authority is given to the subordinate who is performing the tasks. Because although they are subordinate, they may need a certain amount of permission and power to access certain resources to um, undergo this task. And managers may only delegate boring jobs to employees that they don't want to do anyway. And that will not motivate the employees and will make them feel like they aren't worthwhile giving more work to. Delayering is the removal of one or more of the levels of hierarchy from an organizational chart. And in this process, the lowest and the top layer are the safest layers to be in because they're least likely to be delayered. Benefits of delayering is that it reduces costs. It also shortens the chain of command and it increases the span of control and the potential for delegation. 
As a result of that, it can further increase the motivation, which will help the efficiency of the business. Disadvantages is that there are costs of layoffs because you cannot dismiss someone um, without a proper reason. Therefore, you will have to lay them off and that will be expensive. And there is more work for the managers because there's less staff supporting them. And people might not feel safe about their job and that could affect their um, work too. In governmental organizational structures, there's a system commonly found there known as bureaucracy, and that is an organizational system with standardized procedures and rules. This can carry negative connotations, but all the paperwork is to get something specific done. So it can be very efficient because it is to help um, the society of that government. Then there are two ideas uh, that relate to the changes or the management of organizational structures and these are centralization and decentralization. Centralization is keeping all of the important decision-making powers within the head office or the center of the organization. So this is often in a tall or vertical structure. And then decentralization is decision-making powers are passed down to the organization to empower the subordinates and the product managers, which is more common in a flat organizational structure. The advantages of centralization is that there is a fixed set of rules with consistent policies. So workers are considering the whole business whilst making the decisions, and if purchases are made centrally, then this can help achieve economies of scale. These senior managers at the head office are also going to be the most experienced decision makers, so the decisions are likely to be um, the most reliable and the most responsible. Benefits of decentralization include that more local decisions can be made, which could reflect different conditions because different departments will have different needs. More junior managers can also develop the skills necessary to prepare them for a more challenging role in the future. Delegation and empowerment is also made easier, and this can have positive effects on the motivation of employees. And there can be decision-making which is more efficient and is dependent on changes in the environment, such as local market conditions. This makes departments more flexible, too. There are various different types of organizational structures, and the hierarchical structure is one of the main ones. This is a structure in which power and responsibility are clearly specified and allocated to individuals according to their position on the hierarchy. So there are three different ways that this could be organized. It could be organized by product, by function, or by region. So by product means that each department is working together for one product. So there would be different business functions in each department. For example, there'd be a production team, a marketing team, and a finance team in one part of the organizational structure working towards one specific product. The advantages of this is that it focuses on a specific thing and it provides a lot of direction. By each having their own senior executive, it also makes sure that the division is going to receive the resources that it needs. And a product division's focus allows it to build a common culture, which means that there's a higher morale and better knowledge and motivation in that division. This is preferable to having its product or service managed by multiple departments through the organization because there's less personalization and personal connection to the product. Disadvantages of this is that it may cause for competition between the different product departments for the same resources. Another disadvantage is compartmentalization. So because the divisions are working on their own thing, there is a lack of coordination and that could lead to the duplication of developments 
or a lack of coordination between them, meaning that their um, compatibility of products is very poor or not even possible. Then by function is probably the most traditional organizational structure and it is where each um, division is organized by its business function. So that would be marketing, finance, um, operations, human resources, etc. So they're working on different products, but they're using their same functions. Benefits of this is that it can help improve efficiency because the employees are grouped by their skills. So the specialists are cl clustered together and that promotes collaboration. Another a benefit is that employees can capitalize on their specialized skills as a means to move up the ladder in a given department so they can build on each other. However, the disadvantages of this is that such a structure usually goes from the top downwards. That means that communication is not usually the most efficient. And there are very few horizontal links between the departments, which means that there is a lack of coordination, or at least it could lead to this. Managers are also often accused of tunnel vision because they're not looking at problems in another way other than the perspective of their own department, which could make decisions very uh, subjective to their needs. And this type of structure is not flexible, so it could make it difficult for a business to change when the business environment develops. And lastly, there are organizational structures by region, which is used by multinational businesses because they have many countries uh, in which their business operates. So that means that their divisions are split by region and each region will have all the business functions and the different products associated with these so that they can be managed separately. Advantages of this is that the communication between the representatives can be very direct and personal to their geographical location. It can also help because grouping employees into a regional section will encourage the formation of a strong team and they will work together in their specific location. The ability to recruit, recruit local management can also offer the company a advantage because they have leaders who are familiar with the local business environment and the culture. Better decisions can result from this because of the knowledge and the experience of a regional manager. This can also help to boost the recognition of the business in a foreign country. And tracking the performance of individual regional markets is simplified because they are already split in their divisions. So they can compare which region is doing most um, and which region is doing the least or which is most successful and which is the least successful and so on. Disadvantages of this is that there could be the duplication of personnel because the same people are needed in different locations. There may also be conflict and unhealthy competitions between the regions to do the best. And it can make it more difficult to be consistent in the core company beliefs because there could be varying ethical codes of practice in different areas. And there may be a variety of monitoring systems, so not everybody is controlled equally. And there could also be an inconsistency of the company strategies because they could be adopted in different ways as a result of the poor coordination. Some of the factors that influence organizational structures are the size and number of employees, the leadership style, the economic situation, the corporate objectives, and new technologies. Now there are alternative organizational structures that are different than, than the hierarchical type, which is the basic one. And one of these is the matrix structure. This is a structure that creates project teams and they cut across traditional functional departments. So what this does is that it is, it is a flexible organizational structure and it's based on the specific needs of 
a particular project. It's also referred to as a project-based structure. So that means that members of the different functions will be put into different teams for different projects. Benefits of this is that it allows total communication between all the members of the team and it cuts across the traditional boundaries between the departments. There's also less chance of people focusing on what is only good for their department because they have a common goal and they are making a project so they need the efforts of all the departments. The crossover of ideas between people with the specialist knowledge is also going to be different and it tends to create more successful solutions because there is more diversity of the specialist knowledge. It is not only specialized in a specific function. And new project teams can be created really quickly, so it's well designed to respond to a changing market or technological conditions. This makes a business more adaptable. Disadvantages of this, however, is that there is less direct control of the top as the teams are empowered to undertake and complete a project. That means there's no senior manager. And the passing down of authority to more junior staff is going to be difficult for some managers to accept. So although there are still senior managers in the actual business, in the project itself, they are all equals. The benefit of the faster reaction to new situations is that there's the expense of reduced periodic control. And this trend could be res resisted by senior managers. So it could cause conflict because it's changing the usual um, structure and the usual way that a business um, is organized. And the last disadvantage is that employees could have two leaders because they have their usual departmental leader and their project leaders. And that could be confusing as well as cause conflict or any misunderstandings. Then there's also another alternative structure, which is the horizontally linked structure. And this is primarily found in the IT and the high tech sectors because employees are grouped by function into three areas. And these are planning, building and running. The structure allows a company to respond really quickly to the changing market conditions and any technological advancements. Another alternative structure of organization is Handy's Shamrock organization, and this is all about the future. It is a flexible organizational structure consisting of the professional core, the contingent workforce, and the outsourced vendors or workers. So the professional core is the full-time experts who are necessary for the organization's operation and survival. Then there is the contingent workforce, and that is usually temporary staff, which is hired by the organization, and outsourced vendors, which is individuals or other organizations hired on a contract basis to carry out specific functions for the business, but these are not core roles. In general, most companies are moving away from traditional organizational structures because the future requires flexibility. So because of the current environment and its constant changes, businesses need to be adaptable and a fluid organizational structure can allow that. Another important aspect in this unit is the importance of effective communication. So the effectiveness of internal communication can have a large impact on many parts of a business. So for example, it can impact employee motivation and labor productivity because if employees are encouraged to participate in group discussions, then effective communication will help them stay motivated. The number and the quality of ideas generated by the workforce will also be impacted because if they're asked for their ideas and they are um, asked to discuss and share their ideas, they will assist, it will assist them to problem solve. The speed of decision making can also be affected because more people will be communicated with, which can lead to slower decision making and more parties giving their opinions. 
the speed of response to market changes. If the changes in consumer taste takes a long time to be communicated, then the decision makers will not be able to keep up with um, the market and make the necessary decisions to develop the business. So that would slow down the response. Communication also will reduce the risk of errors. So if there is an incorrect understanding of a poorly expressed message, it's going to lead to incorrect responses. But if there is effective communication, then there will be less issues like this. Effective coordination between departments will be strongly effective because they are dependent on the word of other people. So if, they're, if they are not able to uh, communicate effectively, then the departments will be doing their own things and they will not be sharing um, the process that they're working on or the stage in development and so on. Effective communication is also dictated by cultural differences because each national, national or ethical culture is going to have different beliefs and practices that certain members will take for granted. So they need to make sure that their um, communication adheres to these. There's also a great challenge for multinational businesses regarding communication because they're so widespread and because they cover um, different cultures. So the communication might need to be edited to be uh, passed on to other people. And there are so many parties involved that are geographically separated. Key management functions. Directing, organizing, coordinating, planning, reporting or responding, objective setting, budgeting, and staffing. This can be remembered with the mnemonic of DOC props. So a manager is defined as someone responsible for setting objectives, organizing resources, and motivating staff so that the organization's aims are met. And to carry out these functions, they have to undertake different roles. Henry Mintzberg identified 10 roles common to the work of all managers, and he divided them into three groups. The first group is interpersonal roles. This is dealing with and motivating staff at all levels of the organization. The second one is informational roles, which is acting as a source, receiver, and transmitter of information. And the third one is decisional roles, which is taking decisions and allocating the resources to meet the organization's objectives. Although it might seem the same, there is a distinct difference between leaders and managers. Leadership is defined as the art of motivating a group of people towards achieving a common object objective. So the main differences between management and leadership is that in management, it is about directing and monitoring others, while in leadership, it's about motivating and inspiring others. In management, it's focused on problem solving, while in leadership, it's innovators who encourage them to also accept changes. And management looks at an official position of responsibility in the organization, and leadership could stem from personal qualities or traits. So you could be a leader, although you don't have a very senior position. Management also looks at skilled and qualified people that perform certain roles, while leadership have, leaders have natural abilities and instincts. They don't need to have a senior role to define them as leaders. They just have, um, it's part of their personality. Management believes in doing things right, while leadership believes in doing the right thing. So it's a bit of a different objective. And management also is listened to by others because of their status. So they could have a bad personality, but they're listened to because they have an important role. While leaders are respected and they're trusted because of who they are. So people follow them because of their personality. 
Leadership also creates and develops a culture of change, while management accepts this and confirms, conforms to the norms of the organization. So I would say the main difference between these two is that leaders are not official people, but that they are um, naturally skilled in motivating and inspiring others, while management is people that are they have official positions and they want to meet specific goals and their personality does not impact this at all. There are a lot of different leadership styles. Autocratic leaders are a style of leadership that keeps all decision making at the center of the organization. Paternalistic leaders is a type of fatherly style of leadership because it has a dominant male where their power is used to control and protect their employees and they're expected to be loyal and obedient. Democratic leaders is a leadership style that promotes the active participation of all the workers in taking decisions. And laissez-faire leadership is a leadership style that leaves a lot of the work and the business decision-making to the workforce. So it's more of a hands-off approach by the managers and it is pretty much the reverse of the autocratic style. And lastly, situational leaders is an effective leadership that varies with the task in hand and they have to adapt their leadership style to each situation. So they could use autocratic or democratic leadership alternatively, depending on what the business is facing in that moment. Benefits and drawbacks of autocratic leaders. This often speeds up decision-making processes because it is made by one person. The leader has total control, so they're able to um, make decisions on behalf of everyone, which is very efficient. It's also very clear because only one person is providing information and making the decisions. It can also provide workers with a clear sense of direction because they know exactly who to turn to and they know what their role is. And it is usually appropriate and effective. Disadvantages, however, is that creativity and innovation are suppressed because the employees are not involved in any of the decision-making processes, so they might feel irrelevant. Similarly, it doesn't develop any internal talents because everyone is always on, uh, for focusing on their own part of the business and not involved in any other aspects. It can demotivate the employees because their, empl uh, because their opinions are not being valued, and it does not build an intrapreneurial spirit, which is necessary for the evolving of a company. It can also lead to a high labor turnover, which would be a lot of employees leaving annually, and this can also be costly. Benefits and drawbacks of a paternalistic leader. This is similar to autocratic, but it has more of a loving approach. Benefits of it is that it motivates staff because they feel like they're being guided and they feel like they have someone looking out for them. It also ensures more harmonious relationships at work because the leader is val valuing their staff and showing that they care. This helps to promote loyalty as well and creates a sense of belonging. It can generally lead to lower uh, labor turnover because um, the people have more of an emotional connection to the workplace. So this would lead to higher profitability. Disadvantages of paternalistic leaders is that the decision-making is still centralized, so people could still be dissatisfied with the fact that their opinions are ignored. Communication is also usually top-down. And lastly, paternalistic leadership may not always make the best decisions, and that would lead to conflict and disagreement because of the close relationships that um, the leaders have with the employees. Benefits and drawbacks of democratic leaders. Benefits is that workers feel valued and empowered because they're involved and they, their participation is encouraged. 
This can also help them be more motivated and lead to a more effective and efficient workforce. There is two-way communication, which allows from, for feedback from staff, meaning that the workplace is always developing and becoming better. And workers are given information about the business, and that allows full staff involvement. This also helps to create a better sense of community. Disadvantages is that there is a cost of training staff and that it can also be less efficient because they are all involved in the process of decision making. There may also be matters that not all members of the staff can be involved in. So, for example, the losing of jobs or confidential um, information that can't be um, in, cannot involve all staff. Benefits and drawbacks of les affaires leaders. The benefits of this is that it is motivational because you have a lot of freedom to do what you want and that helps to promote entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation, which is really important for a growing business. Disadvantages is that the coordination of a business is made more difficult because there isn't one person um, ensuring that everything is running smoothly. It can also lead to a lack of performance or a slacking of employees because nobody's controlling them and they don't feel obliged to provide anything. There is also very minimal supervision in a laissez-faire leadership. And lastly, the benefits and drawbacks of situational leaders. A benefit of this is that it recognizes that effective leaders have to be adaptive, and it shows that they don't need to adapt to a single leadership style, but that they can change between them because that is going to make the best out of every specific situation. It also shows that it is possibly the most practical of the leadership style because it applies to most business organizations. Disadvantages of this is that people may like consistency. So they like when things are a certain way and they are used to that. So a lot of changes could affect the um, efficiency or the effectiveness of the workforce. And leaders probably also have one natural style that they prefer. So it might be difficult for them to um, show leadership in all these different styles that they are not familiar with. Then there's also ethical leadership, and this consists of leading by making ethical and right decisions. So that has a clear set of parameters or guidelines on what can, can and cannot be done. Moving on to motivation. Motivation is the intrinsic and extrinsic factors that stimulate people to take actions that lead to achieving a goal. Extrinsic motivation comes from external rewards associated with working on a task, for example, pay or other financial benefits. And intrinsic motivation comes from the satisfaction derived from working on and completing a task. Well-motivated workers are going to help an organization achieve its objectives as cost-effectively as possible because they're going to try to reach their own personal goals and satisfy their own needs, which will help to promote the company's goals. Things that employers want are, for example, sufficient pay, variety, enjoyment in the workplace, work challenges, recognition for a job well done, and a sense of purpose. Unmotivated or demotivated staff is less likely to perform effectively, and that's going to offer only the minimum of what is, what is expected of them. Signs of a motivated staff are lower labor turnover, lower unit costs, better suggestions, and a seeking of promotion and responsibility to work harder. Signs of demotivated staff is absenteeism, lateness, poor quality of performance, grievances, higher labor turnover, and accidents in their work. 
Five motivation theories can be used to highlight the different behaviors of people in the workplace. The first one is by F.W. Taylor and scientific management. So his theory was about the first serious attempt to analyze worker motivation. So he was the first to do so, and he aimed to advise management on the best ways to increase worker performance and productivity. He's known as the father of motivation, and what he advocated was that more money would lead to better work. It works well with the autocratic leadership style. Taylor argued that the main reason for why people work is money. Therefore, by increasing this, they would work harder. This was done with the piece rate payment system. So you get paid for your work and not on an hourly rate, meaning that the more you work and the more you provide, the more you would get paid. Disadvantages of Taylor's method is that it is rather authoritarian and it's less suitable in modern businesses because it's not as easy as providing one thing and getting money for it. There's also far more to motivation than just money, especially in today's day and age where um, self-fulfillment is extremely important and a prescribed method isn't going to suit all the individuals in the same way. Qualitative factors are completely ignored by this method, therefore it doesn't cover all qualities of an employee. Moving on to Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. His was not based only on the people in the work environment, but he also showed the psychology and sociology of motivation. So his theory is based on a pyramid of needs that will reach the maximum motivation. So it begins at the bottom with physical needs such as food, shelter, and water, moves to safety needs such as protection and job security and health, moves to social needs like trust, acceptance, and friendship, esteem needs from respect from others, status, and recognition, and then the last one is self-actualization, which is reaching one's full potential. So Maslow's theory was literally a hierarchy of human needs based on the first thing what is most necessary and the last thing what is most desired but least necessary. Limitations of his theory is that not everyone has the same needs. So although these might be human needs, every person is going to be unique and is going to want more things than others. It's also hard to identify where an employee is if that level has been met because they haven't reached the next level yet. So they might be unsure of where they really stand. Money is also able to increase or lower the certain levels of needs, such as status and esteem, which means that it is not solely focused on motivation, but that there are other things that could influence it. And lastly, self-actualization is never permanently achieved because that would be an ongoing personal process. Moving on to Hertzberg and his two-factor theory. He based his theory on factors that gave people a good feeling about their job and factors that gave people a bad feeling about their jobs. So these were split into motivational factors and hygiene factors. Motivational factors were aspects of a worker's job that helped them achieve job satisfaction, so achievement, recognition, or meaningful and interesting work. And hygiene factors were aspects of a worker's job that had the potential to cause dissatisfaction that made them not like their job, such as pay, working conditions, status, or over-supervision. So these were his two factors, motivators and hygiene factors. Examples of hygiene factors include company policies, conditions of employment, job security, pay, relationships with colleagues, status, supervision, treatment at work. And motivators included achievement, advancement, challenging work, decision-making, nature of the job, personal growth, purpose, recognition, and responsibility. A main consequence of Hertzberg's theory was that although a working condition and other hygiene factors could reduce the dissatisfaction of the workforce, 
motivation wouldn't exist because of a good working condition. So they are not completely linked in that way. It has to come from the individual. So motivation to do the job and to do it well will only exist if motivators are in place. So the absence of hygiene factors isn't enough. Hertzberg also suggested that motivators would be improved if they adopted the principles of job enrichment. And this aims to use the full capabilities of workers by giving them the opportunity to do more challenging and fulfilling work. Such as assigning workers complete units of work, providing feedback on performance, and giving workers a range of tasks. Rather than the hygiene factors bringing down the motivation, working on the motivating factors to reach job enrichment. Moving on to Adams and equity theory, the theory is in two parts. Does the input equal the output and are the colleagues treated fairly? So this theory is built on the belief that employees become demotivated towards their jobs and their employer if they feel that their inputs are greater than their outputs, meaning that they're putting in a lot of effort, loyalty, commitment and skill, but their outputs such as financial rewards, recognition, security are weak. So they're putting in a lot into the uh, product or the business, but they're not receiving a lot from it. While many of these factors can't be quantified, Adams argued that employers should attempt to achieve a fair balance between the inputs and the outputs, and that would lead to motivation. The last motivation theory is by Daniel H. Pink, and he argues that people aren't solely motivated by money. Instead, they are motivated by three things. Autonomy, which is being self-sufficient to direct your own life. Mastery, the self-improvement to learn and create new things, and purpose, the self-esteem and drive needed to better ourselves. His model is particularly relevant because it sheds away from the traditional models, which are usually ineffective because they're very focused on financial rewards, when today's day and age shows that much more is needed for uh, satisfaction. Although this is the case, payment or financial reward system are still effective and they are still present today. So examples of this would be a salary, wages, commission, profit-related pay, such as bonuses, performance-related pay, employee share ownership schemes, which encourages employees to stay with the business, and fringe benefits, which are perks. And this could be specific to every company, such as company cars or a, a gas card or specific um, discounts on offers and so on. Non-financial methods of motivation include job enlargement, job enrichment, teamworking, and empowerment. And these are much more focused on the qualitative factors in the workplace. Empowerment is when employees are trusted by their managers with greater responsibility and decision-making power. Job enlargement is when they are given more tasks or activities that are added to the worker's job description. Teamwork refers to the combined efforts of a group of workers to achieve a goal together. Job enrichment is enhancing the experiences of workers, giving them a wider range of challenging tasks and more responsibility. Job rotation involves switching between jobs for a period of time, which allows people to learn new skills and switch up the atmosphere. And purpose is an intrinsic, non-financial type of motivation because people believe that they genuinely are doing motivational and meaningful work. That wraps up Unit 2 of Business Management Human Resources.